My guest today is the head of EMEA business development at F5. Here's what some of his colleagues have said about him. I have witnessed firsthand his outstanding leadership drive and ambition. Here's another one. He's been a large influence on me. Under his guidance, success is inevitable. He consistently goes above and beyond to ensure that he's focused on doing what is right. And he has the innate ability to bring out the very best in those around him. And finally, he is exceptionally good at his job. His ability to engage with other teams and customers, communicate clearly and solve problems is mind-blowing. Jason Ring, you're very welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Paul. Uh, I'm not sure who said all those lovely things about me, but I, I paid him a lot of money to say that stuff, so... <laughs> yeah, it did, and and it's still, and it's only a small selection of what's up on LinkedIn. So, um, it's obviously cost you a lot of money. That's all I'll say. Yeah, <laughs> that's what some people think, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Jason, I am, I, I am going out here on a limb by saying that you're a Cork native, by from the accent. Uh, yeah, the the accent gives it away. I think. It does a bit. Um, you you grew up in Cork, I take it. What was t- tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, so uh, I, I think uh, f- funny growing up. Uh, I didn't always. Uh, I suppose it wasn't your atypical looking Irish person. If that was it, I get a lot of this Mediterranean look. Uh, when I used to go on holidays, people spoke to me in uh, Italian or Spanish or Portuguese, um, and then <clears throat> then I opened my mouth and they're like, "What is that?" Uh, so that, that, that came from my, my, my dad was actually born in, in Malta and he was adopted by uh, an Irish family um, when he was two. Um, so came to Ireland um, and actually his family uh, adopted four people. So his brother was adopted mm. from Germany. His sister was adopted from uh, uh, Slovakia, I think, at the time, or it would have been mm. uh, uh, Yugoslavia or whatever you call it. Mm. So, so it was quite a diverse mixture. Um, but mm. yeah, me, myself, I've... Uh, I'm born and bred in Cork. Um, done a good bit of travelling over the years, but still, it's, as you probably know, Paul, the, the Cork accent is one. To, it's hard to lose. <laughs> I think I think Cork, um, Ireland, Ireland in general, um, but Cork as a as a region has dramatically changed over the last twenty, thirty years. Um, so I grew up in the the nineties. I was born in eighty eight. Um, I won't tell people what age I am, but you do the maths. Um, but it, it's it's transpired to be a completely different place that I would you know to what I thought it was be, it would be. Uh, mm. Funny enough, when I when I was growing up, my ambition, um, well, my first ambition was to be a soccer player. Um, that didn't necessarily. If you've ever met me face to face, ball, I wouldn't have the the physical stature of a soccer player. I'm only about five six, so they don't tend to get picked up by uh, Chelsea or Man United too much. Um, so my second my second passion was to to actually help people, right? So my my first passion was to be in to play sports and when that didn't work out I wanted to be involved in helping those that could play sports so I went and uh, done a degree in physiotherapy um, and then my plan was to go out into the you know the big bold world and, and work and at the time there was just a saturation of physiotherapists so I decided to see what else I could do and I got the opportunity to go to the UK for four years um, in college to study osteopathy and osteopathic medicine um, and then my, my big plan was to just travel the world or live in the UK or you know move to Canada go to Australia do it all you know what my, a lot of my friends had done which was migrated out of Ireland right and out of Cork um, but I, I never did uh, and actually I, I deepened my roots here um, I mm. built my career from here um, 
I think, you know, I, I take pride in the fact that I, you know, uh, the companies that I tend to work with um, hire people locally in Ireland. They, they give back to the economy. They, they keep the jobs in the region. They, you know, which is very important for me because, you know, as I get older now, Paul, um, I, I give an example. I have my wife's uh, cousin. She's just leaving, finishing school. And she's like, Jason, I'm looking for career advice. I'm looking to figure out what to do next. Um, I'm looking to, like, to get into sales or marketing or customer support or, or whatever. You know, do you know anybody? And I do. Like, and I take pride in the fact that I've built my network over the years, and my network is local and it it it's spread everywhere else as well. But that's that that that's actually um, a big uh, kind of for me mm. a point that I take a lot of pride in the fact that you know over the years Cork has changed. I've stayed here. I didn't migrate, and I've actually deep my roots here. I bought a house here. I have kids. Um, and ultimately trying to build, say, for example, F5 here as well. That's a, another, mm. another key goal for us. Mm. Sounds like they'll carry you out of a box there. I, well, I wouldn't say Cork is the best place in the world to live, but it's definitely the second best place in the world to live. <laughs> um, no, I think, I think it has everything that I'm looking for, right? Um, mm. I, I think it has everything that my wife and my kids are looking for. Um, mm. And when that doesn't happen, then that's when you know, people change, right? And things migrate and you look at what's good for you and what's good for your family and, and all those things. So how did you get from physiotherapy to sales? Uh, like any good salesperson, and I'm sure any good sales leader or anyone that has been in sales for many years would say in your podcast, Paul, by complete accident. <laughs> it wasn't scripted. Uh, I didn't go to college thinking, you know, I'm going to be in sales for 40 years or I'm going to be in IT mm. security or, I, you know, uh, Ultimately, how it happened was um, when I left physiotherapy and I got the opportunity to move to the UK to do osteopathic medicine, um, there was no grants uh, given by both the UK or Irish government because I was technically an Irish citizen studying in the UK. So I, I didn't avail of any grants on either side. So I had to think of a part-time job. I had to get a part-time job to pay my way through college. And again, I was flying over and back, so I had to pay for flights. I had to, you know, I spent a lot of time sleeping on coaches of friends that were Irish because obviously there's a massive Irish community in, in London and in the UK as you imagine um, but I needed a way to, to pay my bills and, and like fend for myself my parents couldn't afford to pay me through college like the, the, I think the, the, the fees every year were £10,000 and that was before you do anything else so I fell into a part-time sales job and my first ever job was selling car tires believe it or not that was my very first job um, started at about 17 um, it wasn't my first ever job. As you know, as you're a kid, you have part-time jobs, right? You know, working in a shop mm -hmm. or a hotel or whatever. But it was my first actual job where I had, you know, responsibility to keep a job. Um, and that was my very first experience in selling anything. Customer-facing, the cost of something to somebody else, negotiating prices, entering data into CRM, like Exchequer or NetSuite or mm -hmm. whatever. Um and, and that's how I fell into it, by complete not accident. Out of necessity, really, I needed a job to pay my way through college. Um, mm. And that's, uh, I don't know if you've ever sold car tires, but it's definitely, you know, people say it's tough to sell IT security products. I, I don't know about that. Yeah. If, you, if you ever had a, sat on the phone, tried to sell a car tire to somebody, <laughs> it's nearly more complicated. So, Yeah, this, this idea interests me a lot, this idea that people say I'm in sales and to me yeah. that's like saying I'm in IT it's such a broad field and you can be successful in one arena and 
struggle in another and the type of natural the skill sets traits that make you successful dealing with the not just dealing with the details of setting tires which i can imagine is quite you know get, getting the measurements and getting the details right is important but also the kind of the the, the diversity of customers excuse me <clears throat> the diversity of customers you might be dealing with is very very different to dealing with SaaS software or cybersecurity. Um, how did you make that transition from selling tires, which is is a, is a very service orientated type business, to problem solving security yeah. type sales? So I think the the first thing you said about someone says, "Oh, uh, I'm in sales, or I'm good at sales, or I can do sales." I get that a lot. I can do sales, and like you can do mm. sales. That's very mm. You know, a generalized statement. I can do medicine, okay. I can do, I, you know, I can do engineering. <laughs> it, so, That's a good you know, yeah. you know, over the years we've probably come back to that in a minute about you know the that whole statement itself. But how how did I transition from uh, say from one profession to the other, or even if I look at um, osteopathy or physiotherapy into a completely different job or a completely different mindset? It was all about people. Uh, and I know mm. that sounds very uh, cliche and cheesy, but, but actually, fundamentally, it's all about people. So any sales job is about, um, and I look over the years, kind of, what did I do better than other people? Um, and why was I more successful than other sales reps in certain patches? Or if I had that region, and I, how was I able to do better? Because I was able to just relate to the other person um, better. Mm. I was able to strike up a relationship better. So when I first started out, um, you know, selling car tires or whatever it was, dealing with customers, or if it was dealing with patients <clears throat> or colleagues in a physiotherapy environment or medical environment, you're still dealing with people. It's still the same thing. You're actually technically selling a different service, a different product, right? But it's, the, the concept is the same. You're still dealing with people. And I just brought that mentality and that kind of, I suppose, generalization to my first job in, in, in IT, which was, you know, 13 years ago, selling, selling software. Um, and I had no idea, I knew nothing about software, I knew nothing about like the infrastructure of a business. I didn't really have a, a business degree background because my background was in physiotherapy and, and, and medicine, right? I had no real concept mm. of CapEx versus OpEx or, uh, you know, gross margin and all these different things. I had no, no concept of anything, really. Um, but I threw myself into understanding what the person that I was talking to needed. Um, and that was the very first thing that I tried to master was how do I understand what the other person on the other end of the phone or, or you know, the other end of the Zoom or face-to-face, -face, what do they need, what's their drivers, what can I help them with? And actually, I didn't realize at the time how important that is in sales, in a career in sales. That actually sometimes is the difference between you and the other person who's trying to sell another product that cannot relate to a person. They cannot relate to the customer. They can't build a relationship with the customer. They have no... They don't, so in some cases, they don't want to. They just think, well, my product is better than yours. It's, cheap, it's cheaper, it's faster, it's prettier. And look at all this lovely marketing we have over here. Buy my product. Tell me, Jason, what motivates you most in life? Um, I'm, I, I, I hate to lose. I, I, I'm, I, that, that's, anyone that knows me, I, I'm just a terrible loser, right? I'm, I'm, you know, I would say I'm a good winner, but I'm probably a terrible winner as well. Uh, most cock people are, as you probably know, Paul. Um, but what really, what, I think over the years, you know, in my 20s, what motivated me was money. I just wanted to make money. 
I wanted to, you know, buy nice things. I, I had no real responsibilities in my early 20s. I wasn't married. I didn't have kids. I didn't have a mortgage. I didn't have any of those things because I was, you know, my early 20s. So in my 20s, my motivation was money and, and, and title and all those fancy things. And as I kind of got into the, the, the weeds of actually understanding kind of where I want to grow and what I want to be in, you know, when I retire and what I want my legacy to be and where I fit in companies, what, what, what really drives me and gives me passion is making other people better and lending my advice of I've had good managers over the years. I've had bad managers. I've had good successes. I've had terrible failures. And, you know, sales is all about sales general. Sales is all about, you know, learning and improving and moving on. So even if I look at my current role today, what really drives me is my passion to help other people progress in their career. That really is, you know, seeing someone that's not performing before you join and then after, you know, some guidance, some one-to-one, some coaching that they thrive, there's no better feeling mm. for me than that. No better feeling. Yeah, cool. Uh, you mentioned that you've had good managers and bad managers. I'd like to get a sense of, obviously without naming names, uh, if, when you think of a bad manager, what was it? And then talk to me about the good manager and what did they do differently? <coughs> Excuse me. That, you, yeah, that marked think, them out as a good manager. Yeah, so I think over the years, I have been very lucky in, in my career. I've worked for some brilliant companies, um, and I've worked for companies at very exciting stages of their growth. So maybe just after they've gone IPO or just before they go IPO or they're being acquired or they've done lots of acquisitions or you know companies like EMC that were you know the de facto company for storage, for example, you know, 15, 20 years ago, even 10 years ago. Um, and during those times, I've, I have worked with lots of really good managers. If I focus on it, it was the stuff that didn't really benefit me as an employee. So I was an individual contributor. I had a very sole-focused job to do, which was you know hit my targets and be successful. And what I needed from my manager was someone that I could trust, someone that would listen to me, someone that would be honest with me, uh, someone that would have my back but also challenge me. So not, not someone that would tell me all the time what I needed to hear or what I wanted to hear, but would actually give me genuine advice, like, from a from a genuine place um and some of the managers i've worked for didn't really have that right um well i definitely didn't have it with them maybe they had it with other people but i definitely didn't have that with certain managers uh it was very much you know this is your role go do it i don't care what challenges you have that's your job i don't really want to worry about it or you know they tell you that they'd go and help you with something it'd go into a black hole you'd never hear about it and a month later you have to remind the person that you spoke about something a month ago that's directly impacting your job. And as a sales individual in any company, if you don't get that support, that's extremely frustrating because you feel like no matter what I do, I can't do my job because I don't have the support of my manager and ultimately I don't have the support of the company. And in today's market, I would imagine that's a big part of attrition. The reason why people are leaving companies is because they don't have good managers. They don't have managers that care about them, that are trying to support them, and that ultimately are trying to make them successful. You know, managers, some managers, more interested in making themselves look good. Um, and I know the irony of that, me being on a podcast here talking about myself, but ultimately, you know, that, that's in the, the, the cold face of the day job. A manager's job is to make his team successful. Um, and Do, sorry, go sorry, go ahead. No, no, go on, go on, go on. What I was going to ask you on that was um, companies, good companies, I know, spend a lot of money on developing their reps. I'm not convinced they do the same with their managers. 
tell me I'm tell me I'm wrong because I, I I only see a certain aspect of it, and and if so, yeah. why do you think that is? Given that you said a big part of attrition is the fact that people lead managers, not companies. Yeah, and I think you know if you go and you look at anything like what Simon Sinek would say or Warren Buffett or any of these you know thought leaders, I think that that the point of people want to be led, not managed is something that really, um, and I've read tons of books over the years on leadership and transformational change management. And um, the thing that stands out for me is, uh, you know, there's probably too many books in some regards, and there's too many teachings. And actually, uh, what I found, especially as I've progressed into maybe more senior roles, I get inundated with different things from different people every day about how they're going to change my job and how they're going to make me a better person and make my team better and everything's better. And it's just too much. It, it tends to be too much. Um, but that's from external. That's external. Mm. Internally, I don't think there's probably, and I'm not talking about F5 because actually F5, I maybe touch on them in some of the good work they do. But in other companies, there's actually not the time to learn. So if you have an IP, I'll give you an example. If I'm working in a hyper growth a uh, company that's focusing on going IPO next year, right? Four months, four quarters out. You can be damn sure that what they're focusing on is the here and now, the, the numbers today. Are we growing as much as we can? Are we closing all the deals? Are the investors happy? Is everybody hitting their targets? Me being developed into the best manager I could possibly be and will take a, a time. It's investment in me. And some companies just don't have the time to wait around for that. So what you'd probably find is, based on where the company is at and the structure and their ultimate end goal, is it to IPO, is it to be acquired, is it to hit a threshold and have this magic valuation, that dictates how managers are led and trained because it's all about time. Are they, is the company going to give you the time that you need out of your day to actually learn and improve yourself? Mm. Um, and I well, think so, some companies just don't have the ability to yeah. do that because of where they are in their journey. You say they don't have the ability. Is it, is it ability? Is it priority? My, my concern about it is that it's the classical, the urgent pushing out the important and that, that the really strong companies find a way to do both because once the IPO happens, you now need a team prepared to take that company in further along its, its, its uh, path. Yeah, I think definitely prioritization is, is a big piece. Well, um, I think, again, that's probably what I was trying to get at by saying, you know, uh, some companies, their priority is to just hit that magic IPO button, right? And not necessarily their priority in mm. developing people. Um, and like one of the one of the main reasons I, I joined F5, um, I left Global Shares, which is, you know, a fantastic company. I was there for two years. You know, they just had an amazing, uh, they got, you know, acquired by Morgan Stanley uh, recently for like 770 million. And I wasn't looking to leave anywhere. And the only reason and the biggest reason that I looked at F5 was the value and the culture of investing in people, right? Because I know that if I'm invested in as a manager and I get the ability to invest in my team properly and that there's a long-term vision here, not a what happens day-to-day, week-to-week, which is important, but there's also have to be a long-term vision, then ultimately I'll be a better person, the team will be better, uh, retention will be better, culture will be better, performance will be better. If it was the flip side, which was like, we just want you to come in, this is your job today, blah, 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 we don't really care about you as a person, culturally, there's no training, no enablement, I wouldn't have touched the company, um, mm. simply, regardless of package or money, because, you know, while 
as I said to you earlier, motivation in my 20s was money. My motivation in my 30s is not money. I want to build my career and I want to challenge myself and develop my skills and with that develop others around me as well and, and learn from others. Um, so, yeah. if, I, if I were a fly on the wall when you first became a manager and a fly on the wall now, what would I notice differently about Jason? Um, what would you notice differently? Um, probably just how to handle conflict um, uh, internally and externally. Um, so obviously in, in the world that we live in and the world that I work in, you have, you know, you have the customer and everything is around the customer, but then you have the internal stakeholders, you know, you've, IT, you've got HR, you've got legal, you've got finance, you've got sales, you've got marketing, you've got customer success. And then externally, you have your channel partners, your distributors, uh, you know, whatever marketplaces. Um, and when I first became a manager, I had no real, I was thrown into the deep end and trying to understand how to navigate all that. In isolation, I was always able to manage those things because in an individual contributor job, I still talk to partners, I still work internally, but did I care really what the end goal of IT was or HR? No, I didn't care because my job is to make as much money as possible and hit my goals. As a manager, your job is so much more than that. You have to have appreciation for other, other teams, the work that goes into it, their challenges, their timelines, their resources, and how that affects your team. So it's that kind of managing up and down over the years. Um, and it's, hey, geez, I'm, I'm still not perfect at it. I can, I can guarantee you that. Um, especially as you go into a new company, you, you learn it all over again. You go, okay, mm. how does this company operate? And what are the dynamics here? But over the years, I think that's something that I've, I, you know, you just have to, as a good manager, managing other departments and working with other departments, sharing your vision of what you want your team to be, but also being realistic, does that align to all of the other team's visions and the company vision and the mission statement and all those things? I think that would be the big piece of uh, the fly in the wall that you'd probably pick up. I noticed, uh, you, know, you said a moment ago that you've read a lot of books and I've noticed that you put a post on LinkedIn, which was some of your top books of the year. Mm -hmm. uh, if you had to pick one that's made the greatest impact on you, what would it be and why? Ooh, yeah. You're like asking good questions. Um, whew, uh, there's been so many. Um, I think uh, there's uh, Who Moved to Cheese is, is always one. I don't know if you ever read that book, Who Moved to Cheese. Um, it's a small book, but it's, it's so good. Or uh, Turn the Ship Around. And I think the reason why I, I, I picked those books, for example, I've, and so some of the books are very much just the, the basics of management, how to run an effective team meeting, how to manage your forecast, how to look at, you know, the business in general. But some of the roles that I've gone into, and including the role in F5, is a transformational role, right? Um, mm -hmm. And a transformational leader is different to uh, other type of leaders, because my job is to transform and bring people from one place to another and help them on that journey. So if I look at who moved the cheese or um, turned the ship around, for me, I took elements of what happens when you're trying to move an organization from one direction to the other? And ultimately, how do you bring the team on that journey? Mm -hmm. um, and um, what do you need to understand and be aware of when you do that? Because not everybody wants to go on that journey. Not everybody needs the same training on that journey. Some people don't want to join. And ultimately, some attrition will happen. Some attrition is good attrition. Not all attrition is bad attrition. And it's just, again, having that understanding of, 
I suppose from a transformation point of view, how that works. So those two books for me would be uh, two two really good ones. The uh, the Who Moved Your Cheese book that that speaks to you know, it's a while since I've read it, but events in your life, things that happen to you, and how you react to them. It clearly resonated with you for a reason. Could you, would you mind talking to me a little bit about what it was that the book meant to you? Um, I suppose, and again, like the, what I what I take from these things is, is probably maybe a small bit different to what other people think. Um, but what I what I took from the book, um, and even the title, I actually think my kids are home. So I give you an example. My kids, uh, I have a four-year-old and a two-year-old. And they love cheese, right? I mean, all Baby Bell, cheese strings, easy singles. There are other products available in the market. Um, but, you know, they might say, oh, where's my cheese gone? Where's my cheese? And they're looking around and they're trying to, like, they get panicked and they get, um, you know, they, they kind of go off and they get frazzled and they get frustrated. And uh, sometimes in work, the exact same thing happens. Something was in front of you, it gets moved. Hey, where did that go? What happened there? and you're completely taken out of kilter your focus is gone what you were focusing on your strategy maybe you're completely distracted and it could be a big thing in a company it could be the entire structure of the company it could be the comp plan it could be the product set it could be the region it could be the accounts you have it could be whatever it is so what what i took from that book and why why i felt it was resonated so much with me was that um it didn't go on for 700 pages like some books do that they just kind of tail off and does not really uh, you kind of read the end of the book and you go, whoa, where did that go? This book is quite small, as if I remember, very thin. And it just cuts straight to the point that, you know, things will change. Things will be moved. Things in your life will will change and you will be affected by things. And one of the arts of leadership is being able to lead during change, being able to lead when things affect other people, when things move, when things move suddenly. Lots of things happen in a week to week that it's not planned. It's not structured. It's not on a strategic map. How do you manage that situation? How do you help others manage that? Um, so just being being ready for things to be moved around and unexpectedly in a lot of cases is what I took from it. Talk to me about a pivotal moment in your own career where something happened and you started to look at the world differently. Yeah. Um, I, I suppose one of the... So I, I was an only child for 20, 22 years. So I have a, 21 years, actually. So I have a 12-year-old sister, right? So that's probably a story for another day. Um, but I always wanted uh, I always wanted to look after other people. I know that sounds, again, to go back to, I suppose, what we spoke about. But I, I, I am very passionate about that. And I always wanted a family. I always wanted kids. Um, probably, you know, even when I, I, when I was 15, 16, 17, I wanted to have someone to look after, like a brother or sister, just someone to look after. Um, so when I met my, my, my wife and, you know, we, we started um, building a family, I think, you know, the birth of my kids was the, the big piece for me. So I, I was a father at 20, 28, 29. Um, uh, my perception on where I wanted to go in my career and what I wanted from life wasn't that too dissimilar from now, but definitely the motivations were. So, you know, if I go back to the statement I made earlier, in my 20s, I didn't have any other responsibilities. I didn't, I wasn't married, I didn't have kids, I didn't have a mortgage. I only cared about myself, really. Most individual salespeople, if they tell you they care about everybody else, they care about money, they care about success, they care about progression. Um, but when you get to that part where you have the success, you're making good money and you know, you know, you're in a comfortable job, 
you know, if you ever think of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right, there's that self-actualization piece. And for me, that was when my kids were born. Um, and when I come to work now, I don't come to work for me. I come to work for my family. I come to work for my kids. Uh, I come to work to provide them with a better life, uh, to give them opportunities that maybe I didn't have, to bring lessons home from the workplace. And also, I think they make me a better person as well coming to work. They level me out. I go home and there's, you know, they'll tell me something straight out, right? And I, I'm a father. I get criticized all the time by my kids, right? Um, but it does actually make you very humble and it brings you into work and then you're, uh, you know, you're very humbled in work and you can, the way you talk to your team is really good. So I think that was really a pivotal moment for me and uh, the birth of my, my son and my daughter. What's your greatest wish for your own children? Um, that they have the freedom to, to do whatever they want to do um, and that they don't have any, they don't feel like there's boundaries or caps on anything. So that if they want to, you know, if someone wants to be a professional football player, why can't they? If they want to be a doctor or a nurse, so they want to be, I don't know, whoever wants to be, a CFO of a company, some whatever it is, right? Um, that They can be that. Um, and my job is to hopefully steer them along the path and give them the structural and financial and emotional and physical support they need. Uh, but ultimately that they have the ability to, to do whatever they want to do. Um, which in today's world, as you know, Paul, is is a... You know, there's a lot of things that will stop you from doing whatever you want to do. Um, so it's a quite a big obstacle, especially for kids growing up in, in this day and age. Has it never been easier now to, if you, if you want to be a CFO of a company or a doctor or a nurse? I just wanted to explore that with you. There, there's something else there in mm. terms of the kind of obstacles. I guess what I'm trying to understand, Jason, is what's different about today that you feel that may throw obstacles in their way um, when you, you could argue we've, been, we've never had it better. No. And I know that yeah. <laughs> there's, there's a debate around that, but I'm just curious to know what you think about that. Um, so, so I definitely, you know, there's probably more opportunities, especially from a, a technology point of view, right? Um, you know, the internet, uh, the way that we work, Right, we're all you know, remote working, hybrid working, flexi work, uh, the technology we have, the opportunity, social media, all those things. Um, that's definitely increased the ability for, say, my kids to explore what they want to do, but it also has brought uh, many additional pressures for kids growing up. Um, you know, I hear of you know, my, my 12 year old sister, right, getting a, a tablet and wanting a phone when she's seven because her friends have a phone. And they're all on Instagram, and they're all on Facebook, and I'm like, you're you're, you're seven. Like, what what wh what is the need to be on any of these platforms at such a young age when you're trying to develop your basic skills? And then mm. it's what they see online, and it's what other people are saying can happen. So for me, the biggest blocker is trying to remove the noise of just the world that exists to say, look, I don't care what a celebrity posts or what a blogger posts or an influencer. Like, if you want to do that, you can do that. Don't worry about what other people think and say on any of these social platforms. Um, and I think that that is only going to increase, right? It's, you know, there's the next Twitter or Facebook is not far off, right? There's going to be another big bang and there's going to be another five platforms. And I think mm. my kids are the ones that are going to grow up with them, whereas I grew up 15 years ago with other platforms. Yeah. Um, and it's how they navigate that and how they don't get distracted by that. Yeah, I'd, I'd even go further, Jason, and say it's more than noise, it's destructive. And I, I understand what you mean now, that, that on one hand, the opportunities are there, 
but there's far more landmines between them and the opportunity. And they all seem to come back to uh, some of the, the, the toxicity that exists in the online world. The fact they're exposed to it before their brains are capable of separating out the nonsense from what's real. Um, I, yeah. I, I'm glad I grew up of, when, yeah, yeah, different time. I, I think, like, you even touched on it there about, um, you know, they haven't even developed basic skills to understand things. And in, in, in leadership and management, as you know, Paul, the, the term emotional intelligence is, is always kind of talked about, right? You know, a good leader has to be emotionally intelligent. And as kids develop, right, they're only developing their emotional intelligence. They're only, they, some people are like, what is fear? I've never felt fear. What is that? And as they grow up, if they're thrown into things too early, they're going to think negatively of that when if they had a bit more of a grasp on life that they might be able to handle it differently. Um, so that's kind of what I was saying. That what, what I'm hoping to give to my kids is the ability to understand that, yeah, like everybody has their opinion and it is an opinion and everybody can say this, but it doesn't have to stop you doing anything you want and don't let it stop you. Mm. Share with me something that you about you that you reckon none of your colleagues know about you. Uh, oh God, I wouldn't say that much at this stage because I, I tend to talk a lot and they tend to ask a lot of questions. So, um, mm. what what is something? Oh, something you've done, uh, an experience you've had, a place you've oh, been, somebody um, you've met. Well, I was just I. I, I uh, I, I I don't know how many people know this funny story. So I'm a massive I'm a massive um, Chelsea fan, right? Don't don't you know? Don't end the podcast here because of that, right? Um, um, and I've been a Chelsea fan my entire life. So long before we actually had money and trophies and all that kind of thing. And I was playing for a local club in Cork, um, and uh, I I don't know if you kept track of who the uh, the all time top goal scorer for Chelsea was before it was Frank Lampard. But it was another gentleman. Um, I, I'll give you his name. The in a Italian minute. guy. Uh, I don't know if he was Italian. Maybe. maybe not. I'm just wondering. I remember there was, there was a, there was, they had a famous Italian guy who was incredible, and he was about five foot six. Yeah. Oh, you're on about Zola, uh, is it? It's not Zola. Zola anyway. Zola, oh, I didn't meet yeah. Zola, unfortunately. Um, yeah. Although he, he passed he me by in Heathrow Airport once. Amazing, lovely guy, yeah. lovely gentleman as well. Yeah. Um, but I, I was playing a match one day anyway. Um, again, I'm a diehard Chelsea fan, right? Keep that in mind. And um, I I was playing right wing, and I, I was a I'm pretty nippy player. I'm fast, I'm kind of small, and you know. So I, uh, I I run up the wing, and I beat one guy, and I hear from the sideline, "Leave it off now, son. Leave it off." And I beat another guy, go give it off now, give it off. And I beat another guy, and then I lose the ball, and the person on the sideline says. I told you to leave it off earlier, son. And I was like, what do you know about football? I, you know, what do you have to know about football? And I was like, leave me alone. Again, I'm like 16 or something, right? And I'm like thinking I'm this flashy guy, run up the wing. So anyway, the match ends. I think I can't remember if we won or lost the game because uh, <clears throat> someone came up to me and they tapped me on the shoulder. And they said, do you know who that guy was there that was giving you advice during the game? I said, I don't care who that guy is. <laughs> Whatever, like, yeah, no, that, that's Bobby Tamblin. He's the Chelsea all-time top goal scorer. <laughs> and he was giving you advice, and you told him, what does he know about football? And when I found out about that, I ran up. I remember I, I ran up, and I was like, oh, I'm so sorry. Will you, will you sign my jersey? It wasn't even my jersey. I didn't own the jersey. He was like, sign the, will you sign my jersey? So, um, 
So that was a funny story. I don't know if anybody, people might have heard that no. before, but uh, it's one that sticks out in my head because I remember... When did uh, he play? Because I, I was familiar with the Chelsea team in the 70s, Peter Osgood, Benetti. Yeah, um, Peter but, Osgood, but yeah. Yeah, I don't remember that guy's name. He must have been before then, was he? Was he a granddad on the sideline? Oh, yeah, no, like he's yeah. he's in his, I think he's 80 or 81 or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, he he would have been uh fifty late fifties early sixties I think yeah yeah with Chelsea yeah. um yeah. but he again he was the guy that was the all time top goal scorer and um, yeah. I did say to him what does he know about yeah football? what do you know about football <laughs> and it turns out Paul he knows a lot more about football than I do so that's 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 what I found out I was quickly humbled in that situation but at the same so, time maybe you were still right to go and. And if nothing else, you got a lesson out of it, and you might not have got that lesson had you passed it. So. Well, yeah, I probably wouldn't have known it was him because I, nobody would have true. tapped me on the shoulder. So uh, yeah. I definitely yeah. got to the, the end goal I wanted. How I got there was probably a different... Yeah, and you got a great story out of it as well. So yeah. uh, all in all, I think you, you made the right decision at the time. Yeah, given yeah he happened. was nice. He, he politely uh, decided to ignore the fact that I was a bit of a rude little boy. Um, and signed my jersey, and uh, so that was very nice. good. Very good. Tell me, um, who inspires you? Um, yeah, so I think, um, uh, over the years, as I said, I, I, I always I, I, I was infatuated with sport, I was really obsessed with it, and uh, different people. So, I, you know, we've all you know, you look at your Michael Jordans, your Muhammad Ali's, and all these different, uh, different people, but actually, it was David Beckham for me, was the one that caught my eye, and I don't know why, um. I think it was for me, you know, he was obviously a celebrity figure, um, very successful, great footballer, um, but also was uh, in the limelight for a lot of negative reasons. Right, he had a lot of a lot of challenges with his personal life and how he navigated that. But what really caught my attention was how early on he became a businessman, and how early on he knew that his brand needed to be so much more than just a footballer. And that he needed to market himself and develop a business and a career well beyond football. Um, and I think he's a quite savvy businessman, right? I think um, you look at what he's done over the years. How many footballers have bought and built a, an MSL club or an MLS club? Uh, I don't know if many. Um, and you look at what he does for charity and the foundation, and he's obviously got a, a family and kids. So I think over the years, he was someone that I, I thought just managed the dilemma of, you know, the day job, the, the limelight, and then actually making myself to be a, a savvy businessman. Mm. I'm sure there's many better examples out there and everybody would go, David Beckham? Mm. For whatever reason, as I was growing, as I said, as I was growing up, it was just one that stuck in my head and um, someone that I always said, yeah, he's done, a, mm. he's done a decent job. When you've reached that time in your life, Jason, when you no longer need to work, you're financially independent, uh, what would you like to do with yourself? Um, I think I'll always want to work. And I think I'll always regard, if I won the lottery tomorrow and I had 50 million sitting in my account, I'd still be in the office, genuinely. Um, and I think that is because um, it's not about money for me. It's about being around people. It's about motivating people. I know that sounds so stupid to go, yeah, you No, it doesn't sound stupid. What I'm thinking I won't, about I won't be worried about my mortgage repayments, right? Is, no, 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 no. You're financially but, independent. You've no, you've no bills to pay. You don't have to work. Yeah. And uh, it, what's what's interesting to me is that 
you're coming at the question with the energy of a 30 year old yeah that if you were 60 or 70 and the the, the energy level changes i think not 60 or yeah. 70 yet but uh, I'm just wondering what that might be like. Let 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 me ask you differently. Yeah, I think if you yeah, couldn't but, if you couldn't work in a commercial environment, what would you do? Ah, um, I suppose if I couldn't work in a commercial environment, um, I would look. Say if I was six, you know, if I'm in my sixties now, right? I would have worked since I was fifteen, fourteen. Mm -hmm. So in all, you know, obviously started out lots of different things. I would would have hopefully lived a pretty good life and brought my kids up and hopefully have a few grandkids. Um, and I think what I, what I would like to do at that stage of my career is maybe some sort of, uh, you know, educational role or consulting or advisory piece. You see a lot of these people out there, right? Mm. Um, mm. My personal take on it is, you know, you have to earn the ability to be called an advisor. Um, mm. And I haven't earned that ability yet, right? I, I, I can definitely give some good advice, but I also could probably give some terrible advice. Mm. Um, and I think for me, uh, at that stage of my life, when hopefully I don't have to worry about bills and nobody wants to employ me anymore um mm. that i would have enough to give back to, to people to say look this is what i learned over the years and this is kind mm. like very paul probably very much to what you're doing right like the, the, the good work that you guys do there you're bringing a, a different uh level of uh focus and understanding of the industry i'd like to do the same um mm. i think uh, maybe just one more point on that if we go back to the, the original statement about i'm in sales i'm good at sales I'd love to be an evangelist for the actual sales community to say, do you know what? Sales mm. is not something that you're just good at. It's hard work. It's an art. Mm. There's lots of skills you need to develop. The market's going to change. You have to change. You have to develop. How do you do that? So I think for me, I'd mm. like to be an evangelist of some sort to let people know what it's really like. Because I've done, the, I've done all the tough jobs. I've done, I, I've done them all uh, in some shape or form. I'm not magically sitting here with a book that I've read everything off of. I've actually done it. Um, and it's tough. It is. It's not easy. It's tough. If you if you could change one thing about what people, children study in school, what would it be? Uh, I would probably, if to be honest, what you know, I look at like even my cousins and and kind of relatives at the moment doing their leave and stuff, and they're all obsessed about. I need X amount of points, and I need this, and I need that, and I need to do this, and I, I would like to tell them, you know. Life actually has many different stages. Um, and when I was 15, 16, 17, what I wanted to do then first to what I'm doing now is completely different. And actually in my 20s, I kind of went through like, what do I want to do? Where do I want to go? What I would like to see more in, in schools is just an acknowledgement of that there is no one path. And actually everybody has different ways to navigate as they go through life. And maybe educating people more on, you know, it's okay to not follow the status quo of we all are going to do commerce or whatever it is right um but that has to start earlier so that they understand how to develop those again those emotional skills mm. to, to deal with it um mm. i think a lot of it is just theory based it's all about the practical exam of okay you go in you do your leave and start okay you're great because you've got 500 points or you're terrible because you've got 200 points that's not that's actually not accurate and uh, that's mm. not a reflection of people's ability to do a good job yeah, I second that for sure. Two quick questions before I let you go, Jason. Um, mm. If you, you, your house was burning down and you had time to run back in to grab one object, your family are safe, your phone, your computer are all safe. What would you run back in to grab and why? 
Is my dog safe? Is my dog included? Oh, yeah, no, your safe? dog's, yeah, pets, my pets dog, are safe. Right, you didn't say it. Yeah, I'd, ne- so I'd never be so cruel. You're right. I'd never be so <laughs> cruel to leave the dog in the house. <laughs> um, oh, I have, a, I suppose, a sentimental piece. Um, I have a picture of me and all my family. Um, I think, you know, as I grow older and as they grow older, you, you know, they're not going to be surrounded by me all day and I, I, I want memories of other times um, so I think I'd probably uh, I've a nice picture sitting in our front room I'd probably take that uh, just for years to come when I'm getting very very old and they don't want to hang around me anymore I think it'd be nice to have it, so. and, and apart from that football well, boots just apart from that uh, my football boots okay <laughs> when your time on this planet is done how would you like to be remembered Um. I suppose how I'd like to be remembered is uh, first of all, it'd be nice to be remembered, right? Good or bad, that's always a good start, you know? Uh, so if I could be remembered, that'd be good. Um, I suppose the, if I look at my nat- my natural personality, I'm very chatty, I'm very outgoing. Um, that is both a positive and negative, and uh, it's a good positive trait and it's a bad trait. Um, but I'd like to think people... Um, found me outgoing um i'm pretty honest guy I, I tend to be pretty straightforward and again that's again sometimes we can be a good thing and a bad thing um but also that i'm i'm a tough person um you know i suppose by stature looking at me i'm not much to look at right i'm five foot six away at a 10 stone you know you're not going to run away from me on the street if i run after you right um not that i would be running after you but you know i have a strong passion and i'm very driven um and i'd like to think people would say do you know what he was a good guy. He, he worked hard. He was driven. Um, he tried to make the best for himself. Um, obviously, the best for my family. I think that would be good. And like, yeah. also, I'd be happy with some negative comments of, you know what, he was not. He was a, uh, or you know, if it's a, I can tell you. He was a bollocks, as we you, say in Ireland. If, if you ask a few of my, uh, if, if I look at the sporting side of it, because I still attempt to play football now, I, I, I won't be your, the most liked because again, I'm a terrible loser. And I'm ultra competitive, so they probably would have a different perception. Um, but that perception is important as well. Okay, that seems like a great place to leave it. Jason Ring, thank you so much for being my guest today. Appreciate it. Thanks, Paul.